Goods in a good spot. And yes, he does. Oh, no, not paid. Maybe he didn't. Morton has to fish for it. Still fishing. No one's got him. And he's hooked a big one. Brilliant by Robert Thompson. Falling to the ground. Hand pass forward. Inside the 50 by Jack. Socket off the ground by Goods. He can kick a goal, this man. Morton puts it through. From that Friday to Monday, after the prelim final, was the least sleep that I've ever had in three days. And on the Monday, I I seriously considered saying I was unavailable. That's how bad my anxiety was. Hello one, hello all, it is the Bloods of Old podcast, Joel Brown your host here and it has been a few drinks, few drinks, no, it's been a long time between drinks with season one where we wrapped up with Premiership coach Paul Ruse, hope you absolutely loved that interview uh, and if you haven't heard that interview go back, not right now, finish this episode, uh, episode one of season two, Mitch Morton, then go back because we have the likes of Ryan O'Keefe, Darren Creswell, Gerard Bennett, Paul Bevan, former coach Rodney Eid, and of course former Premiership coach Paul Ruse, which was a great gets for season one and hopefully season two is going to be bigger and better as well and uh Happy that you're here listening to it. And if you could do me a solid, do me a solid, go to the Bloods of Old Facebook page, give it a like, and go to Twitter. If you're on the Twitter, give us a follow there as well on all the socials pretty much. And I'll tell you what, if you could also go to Apple iPods. I keep on saying Apple iPods. iPods haven't been a thing in ages. If you go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review, we'd absolutely appreciate that. Helps with the algorithm or I don't know how they work, all that technical stuff, but really appreciate it. And even if you do give us a one-star or less than a five-star, we'll read it here on the pod. We'll stay true to my word on that. And it's been a long time between drinks. A long time between drinks for the Swans having a home bloody gang, given this COVID situation. Oh, I mean, uh, as we speak, as we record, bloody protests in capital cities. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. But uh, anyway, as I record this, uh, the Swans are about to head into their clash at Metricon Stadium with the Fromentle Dockers. That's right. I say Fromentle. Um, look... Equation is simple for our boys at this point in time. I think we've got four rounds until the finals, but all the Swans need to do, they just need to focus on winning. They just got to keep on winning if they want to eye off a potential top four spot. But I think uh, you'll see, uh, as we have kind of already seen, some of the younger kids are going to get uh, probably shuffled through, probably uh, rotated through, you know, swapped in, swapped out. You know, everyone's talking about finals. Are we a premiership contender? Well, we could be, but... I said we have to focus on the F word, and that was focus, funny enough. Uh, not flags, not finals, you know, doing the one percenters, playing consistent football. That is what the Swans need to do. They need to ignore the finals after these four rounds. They just need to focus on these four rounds, and uh, we'll see how the cookie crumbles after that. But fingers crossed, do we dare to dream? Maybe, I don't know. I hope so. Bloody do hope so, though. <laughs> but guest on the show, Mitch Morton. 
I feel Swan supporters have a have a place in their hearts for Mitch Morton, given the two critical goals that he kicked in the 2012 Grand Final that you would have heard at the top of the show there. Absolutely fantastic. But a lot of you wouldn't have known about the uh, struggles that Mitch was having behind the scenes. And I guess when uh, speaking with Mitch, it sort of really hit home for me on a personal level, you know, whether it be battling depression or anxiety itself, to... If you do notice that you're not feeling right or that you're having these feelings, to go see someone and go to talk to someone, I think that is paramount, especially in today's society. After speaking with Mitch, it did definitely made me reflect and think about how I approach things. You know, if I'm not feeling right or if I feel I have a bit of anxiety, talk to someone. And if that's the message that can come out of this episode today, you know, is to to reach someone who has been battling anxiety or depression or any mental health issues you know I'm not I'm not a doctor by any means but I guess the first step is just talking to someone or reaching out whether it be a friend or a doctor or absolutely anyone that's uh, what you got to do it is an amazing story that Mitch does have uh, I guess that's pretty much why he started Mr. Anxiety and I'll make sure to uh, keep the link to Mr. Anxiety on the uh, Facebook on the Twitter on all episodes, so you should, wherever you find that via Spotify, Google, iTunes, you name it, the uh, link will be there. Check it out, and I won't be doing too much rambling. I'll let the interview speak for itself, and I really appreciate you guys being here to listen to it. But before we do go to the interview, a quick break and a quick plug for a Swans podcast that I absolutely love. Hey, I'm Mads. And I'm Debs. Together, we are true bloods. We love the bloody Swannies, and we do a review and a preview of Swannies games each and every week. And to anyone who wants to have a listen to our pod, jump on all good podcast suppliers, whether that's your Apple podcast or your Spotify podcast or your Google Chrome podcast. Jump on. That's where you'll find true bloods, and we appreciate the support. Thanks, guys. My next guest, a journeyman of AFL football, playing 83 games for three different clubs in three different states, experiencing the ultimate high, being a premiership player for the Sydney Swans and the dramatic lows, suffering crippling anxiety behind the scenes. Here to tell us more about Mr. Anxiety, it is the founder, Mitch Morton. Hello and welcome. Hi, mate. Thanks very much for for having me on. I'm pretty excited about today's chat, obviously mixing Football with mental health is, um, is, is is right down my alley. Absolutely. And just, uh, I mean, how are you? How are you feeling? I mean, uh, would you say that you're, I don't know if cured is the right word or if you, uh, just, how are you? I mean, how are you traveling? Yeah, good. Obviously, um, I'm in a far different position in my life than I was two and a half years ago. Um, two and a half years ago was when I kind of hit a really, really low point. I'd been building up towards that for a very long time uh, but I hit a really low point and so low in fact that yeah I was kind of I guess I don't like to talk about it too much but I was you know very very low at that point that people get to before they do things and uh, yeah decided I'd give my anxiety one last opportunity to try and fix it and come up with my own solution for us so that started this just unbelievable journey that I've been on in the last two and a half years where not only have I been able to fix my own anxiety but now I'm helping other people which is I never ever thought uh, I'd be doing that so 
It's been phenomenal. Um, and personally, yeah, I'm in a really, really, really good place. Just take each day as it comes and really enjoying being an entrepreneur and trying to get this, this Mr. Anxiety concept up and running. And at the same time, just enjoying life, not you know, living without anxiety. What does the process look like? I think I have anxiety. I find Mitch Morton online with Mr. Anxiety. Uh, I want to get in contact. What happens then? What does that process look like? Well, it's kind of like there are a few different things that I try to work on with people. I guess I try to offer my knowledge and what I've learned in the last two and a half years and living with anxiety for 15 years before that. I try to offer that knowledge in a few different formats. So I run a daily anxiety program on Instagram where I post an exercise every single morning. Um, It comes online at about 11 or 12 o'clock on the East Coast. Yeah, between 10 and 12 o'clock, I guess, on the East Coast. So people, I guess, could do it later that night or the next morning. I post a, an exercise on there with some, some instructions and stuff that people can do. But then I'm also, you know, putting posts up on my feed on Instagram where I'm sharing information and what I've learned. Um, I talk to people on my messages. I get messages all day, every day. So I'm constantly talking to people on there and sharing what I've learned. I'm starting to run some, some live events, which the first one was due to be this week. But that's possibly going to get cancelled with the, the COVID restrictions over in Perth. Um, so I guess I'm just trying to share my knowledge in all these different ways that I can at the moment. Um, I feel like what I've learned is way too important to, to keep to myself. The number one question I get asked at the moment is, but how are you going to make money? And to be honest, I actually couldn't care less. <laughs> so that, that at the moment, I'm just sharing what I've learned. I do have some ways in the future that I think I can kind of monetize it. But at the moment, honestly, it's not really a priority. And that's, uh, I mean, that's pretty admirable, just um, wanting to help people, uh, I guess, suffering from anxiety. Um, I guess we've not mentioned, uh, not trying to get you to mention names or anything of that nature, but you mentioned people who are reaching out to you. If you could put a percentage on it, what percentage of the people reaching out to you are either present or past footballers and I guess just your average Joe Blows? I don't have that many people that are footballers and stuff like that following me, to be 100% honest. I guess most of the people that reach out to me are just your everyday people because this, this, this does affect your everyday people. And at the end of the day, I do get the odd message from someone who is a footballer. I had a really good conversation with someone last week who, uh, from the outside, you know, their life is, is going really, really well and they've got all these great opportunities at the moment, but internally they're struggling. And I know from experience how hard that is because it doesn't matter what opportunities you're presenting with or, or how good your job is and stuff like that. If you're not feeling good about yourself and you're not in a good frame of mind, you're not going to enjoy that. And at the end of the day, life's about enjoying it. So um, I do get the odd message from those people, but I would say that most of the people I talk to are just everyday people that are, that are struggling with anxiety. And you said in previous interviews, you've been suffering from anxiety since you were about seven. Is, is there a moment in time or something that you think triggered it or is it just something that was always there? I think it started as kind of one event and then it, and then it, it was at a running race when I was seven years old. I, I lived uh, in a tiny little country town called Newdigate, which is a wheat and sheep uh, farming community. Uh, about 400 kilometres southeast of Perth. And uh, I was getting ready for a running race with all the other kids who were my age. And, uh, and it just, I just felt this feeling inside me, just this, this foreign feeling that I'd never really had before. And it was obviously the pressure and the expectation of that race, which was manifesting as you know, performance anxiety. And as we were being called to the starting line, I just got up and I ran to the bathroom and just vomited. I was seven. 
I stayed in there for five minutes and then this huge wave of relief washed over me that I wouldn't actually have to run the race and I felt better. And then I waited in there for about five minutes, um, washed my mouth out and then walked out and they hadn't run the race. They were waiting for me. And then it came straight back. And one of the teachers said, Mitch, are you okay? What's going on? And I said, no, no, I'm fine. And, you know, I was seven years old, but I grew up in the bush where you kind of just got on with stuff. That's kind of what, what I was taught when I was a kid um, out there. And so I just gritted my teeth and I went back and I ran that race and I didn't realise what sort of impact a decision like that would have on me for, you know, what, 20, 20 odd years um, because I never told anyone about it. I just gritted my teeth and pushed and pushed and pushed. So as I was a kid, that got worse and worse. And then by the time I was 17 and drafted into the AFL, it was, it was, it was, my life had started to fall apart. Good uh, segue there with, I guess, getting drafted as a young uh, teenager to, to West Coast. Uh, obviously, admitting vomiting before and after training, um, even some games as well. Uh, do you think you were putting pressure on yourself? I mean, you're coming into a very successful West Coast side that would go on to win the 2006 flag. Don't like to talk about that side of things too much, but <laughs> a successful side. You had the likes of Ben Cousins, Chris Judd, like a really great team. So I guess the question sort of, were you putting pressure on yourself and were you afraid to make a mistake or fail? Yeah, I think I was, but I wasn't aware of what I was doing. I think I didn't know what I know about anxiety now back then. Back then I just started to feel different. I started to really isolate myself and slowly, you know, so I was seven when I started having these issues, but then, they just slowly got worse and worse. So by the time I was 17, 18, um, they were quite debilitating. But, but, but that was normal to me. I didn't, I didn't know any other life. I just thought that's what people went through. I never, I never um, stopped and said, no, nah, I can't do this anymore because that was, life, that was my life. That was, by the time I was drafted, I was in a pretty bad way, but that was my life. And I just had been taught all my life to just get on with it and push through it. So that's what I did. I kept pushing and pushing and pushing. But I look back and it was in year 12 when I had the pressure of year 12 exams and I took school quite seriously because uh, I wanted to get into to medicine. I did year 12 exams and getting drafted and all that just kind of, I felt this pressure on me uh, and then that obviously manifested as, as anxiety, but it didn't get really, really bad until the thing that gave me the most anxiety, which was sport and football, until that became my job. I was kind of like when I was just doing sport a couple of nights a week or, you know, and then I had exams here and there, I could kind of handle it because the rest of the time I was okay. But then as soon as that became my job, everything just fell apart. You know, for my first day of training, it was just, it was just a horrific day and it just got worse and worse and worse. And I think the thing is with these things, it's like anything, they get worse incrementally. So, you know, we have this um, lack of ability as, as humans to imagine what tiny, tiny changes can do over a long period of time. But your mindset, if it's just slowly, slowly getting worse over, you know, years and years and years, you, you end up going so far away from who you are. And that's, that's kind of what happened to me. Let's say there's a recent draftee uh, at a club now, whether it be sort of, uh, I guess, a, a local football scene or in the AFL, they think they have anxiety. What's the steps that they can take to avoid going through what you went through? That's a really, really good question. And it hits home a lot because everything that I post on Instagram and everything that I talk about is designed for me when I was 
that at 17. So I, I can't predict. I don't know what it's like to be anybody else. So I can't predict how other people are going to react to anything that I post or any of the talks I do and stuff like that. But I design everything specifically for what would have helped me when I was in that situation. So I think people tend to push through anxiety a lot. And then, like I was talking about before, all of a sudden two years goes by and you're just like so far from where you were two years ago. You're in such a bad frame of mind that it's then it takes a lot of work to get out of that. So I think as soon as you realise that anxiety is impacting your life, you've got to start doing something about it. That's definitely something that I failed to do. And if I had my time again, you know, I definitely would have, would have stopped earlier and put time into it. But I think just talking to someone, psychologists are fantastic. I think if you can get it really, really early on, a psychologist will be able to give you some tools to, to handle it. I think there are a lot of people out there like myself who have gone through it and have gone and done all the research and all the trial and error of all the different things that you can do for you, for people. So I try to, everything that I do and all the work that I, I put out there is based on the work of other people. I haven't sat in my bedroom and made it up. I go away and I read and I research and I talk to psychs and doctors on Instagram. I've got heaps of them that are available, which is awesome. And then I go from there and I trial things on myself and then I present them to other people. So there are lots of other people like me out there who I guess have done that. So finding those people and finding who you, you, you resonate with. I like to think that I have a really good understanding of what people are going through and what they need to get better. But what I do might not resonate with someone, but if you keep searching, you'll find someone who, who is saying it in a way that, that you can relate to. So I think the days of, this is my personal view. Some people might not like this, but I think the days of needing to have a piece of paper to help people, I think those days are over. I think there are people out there and due to advances in technology that can really, really help other people just by sharing their story and sharing what works for them. So um, there are lots of people out there. I follow lots of people that really help me. So it's just about finding the right person for you. We mentioned, I guess, pressure on yourself. Uh, what about within the family? You come from a country town and you have two other brothers who also played AFL footy in Jared and uh, Kale. Did that have a factor? I think the way that we grew up, which was, was, was like I said, in a, in, a, in a farming community in rural Western Australia, the, the values in those communities are kind of work hard and, you know, push through stuff. And there's, that's been the way that those, those communities have, 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 have done things for a very long time. But, I mean, we're talking about only two or three generations above me. Those men and women went out there and cleared the land. So they, they had really, really testing times in a physical sense but and that and that that kind of philosophy would have worked back then because you did kind of just have to get on with it to, to to do what you had to do they had so much work to do but i think now that life's changed so much and the pressure that we all feel from society to to achieve is so much greater that philosophy of just kind of gritting your teeth and pushing through stuff just doesn't cut it anymore and you know those people in those communities know that this i've had conversations great conversations down where i'm from in lake grace and newdigate and pinger up um, with people and they're really supportive of what I'm doing because they know that um, the way we used to live in those communities, um, we need to learn to talk about things a bit more than we used to. So I think the way we grew up in the bush was certainly played a role, um, but time, you know, people are changing their attitudes down there. Yeah, look, I, I really feel for my brothers. It was, it's hard having your older brother who was, you know, really good at sport then go through what I went through. 
I think it, it took its toll on them. And yeah, I think it was really difficult for them to go and have a really, really good football career after, after, you know, mine, I guess, kind of stagnated because they looked up to me so much and then I fell apart and I was their rock. And that's hard for, that's hard for siblings to watch that happen. So they did their best and that's, that's great. But um, yeah, I don't think having a couple of extra brothers and that put pressure on me, but um, looking back, it would have been nice if, if I could have been better support to them. Getting ahead of myself here a little bit, uh, 2022, that will mark the 10-year anniversary of the Sydney Swans 2012 Premiership. Kids dream of playing in Premierships, but it almost didn't happen for you. Uh, upon researching for this interview, I read an article from The Age where someone within the Sydney leadership group, quote, I didn't trust you or I didn't trust him. Uh, the Bloods culture, very strong at this point. Uh, a lot of expectation on the players to withhold, like to hold that Bloods uh, standard uh, within the playing group. How did you prove yourself? That's a good question. I haven't talked about it a lot since, but the person that said that was actually Adam Goods, oh, wow. um, which we'll get to the end of the story, which is, which is funny. We'll get to that in a minute. But, yeah, I was playing reserves. I was kicking a fair few goals, but I guess I wasn't doing enough of what they really wanted. Um, in terms of putting pressure on and tackling and all the things that Sydney really prided themselves on. And it wasn't until, I guess, the second half of the year I really, really focused on that stuff. I was focusing on it, but it was kind of like, okay, I'll kick my eight or ten goals and I'll tackle after I've done that, if that makes sense. I kind of was really focused on that. And it wasn't until the second half of the year that I went the other way around. I was like, well, I'll focus on this and if I kick goals, I kick goals. And I guess my goal scoring slowed down a little bit. Uh, I think I ended up winning the goal kicking that year for the competition, for the NIAFL competition that year. So that it's, but the first half of the year, I kicked more goals. It slowed down a bit. I started focusing on, on tackling a lot more. And I think the game that, the last game that I played of reserves that year, I think I only kicked one or two goals. And I think Trent Dennis Lane, who was playing at the time, might've kicked five or seven or eight, but they were really happy with, the pressure and the tackling and the sticking to structures and all that, that I did on that day. And then I got to play the next week, which was the qualifying final in Adelaide. So I went straight in. Uh, it was my first full game for the Swans. I'd played two games as a sub, but that was my first full game for the Swans. And then I went in and just, it's funny. I hadn't had it. I didn't touch the ball in that qualifying final until five minutes before halftime, but I'd had a few tackles and I'd, I knew I was doing the right thing structurally which is what I went in there to do. I wasn't worrying about the goals. And then, then I kicked a goal before halftime and then another one just before three-quarter time. Um, they were both pretty important goals, but I was just still focusing on the structures and stuff like that. So, yeah, I guess I'm really focused on that stuff in the finals. And then in the grand final, I was very lucky to be in the right spot at the right time, kick a couple of goals, and both of those goals were handballed to me by Adam Goods. So it's quite funny how it all went around in the end. And you mentioned that it was uh, Adam Goods, because uh, I know at the time, I think this the, the article dated back to 2013. Um, it's interesting to hear that uh, Adam Goods, he sort of said, or you heard, he said that he didn't trust you, but you, you approached him about this, correct? Yeah, I just wanted to know what was the issue, because I felt like I was doing everything that they told me. But it was, honestly, it was only the smallest change of mindset from... Going from that, he said, you're just too focused on kicking goals and it's, and it's obvious. As soon as I changed that mindset after talking to him, it's only a really, really small thing. I was still working really hard to kick those goals. It wasn't like I was going there and just sitting in the goal square and 
expecting everybody to do the work. I was doing the work and I was working hard. I just needed to change my mindset and trust them a little bit more, trust that if I didn't kick the goals but I did the other things right, they would get my back, I guess. And that's how it all worked out in the end. So that was a really hard week when I found that out. Like I was really upset. And I don't want to go too much into how having anxiety makes you feel, but it keeps you in this constant fight or flight mode where you're really defensive and it's really hard to take feedback. It's really hard to develop. Um, so that was a really challenging period for me. So I guess it was maybe on the outside looking in um, that potentially you were looked upon maybe as a selfish player because, you, like you said, you're trying to focus on goals as opposed to the, the team structures and the team things. Yeah, I guess from if you, if you come and watch the game, you wouldn't have said I was selfish because I would still do all the team things. And, I, you know, I, I love playing in a team environment. But I guess if you weren't there, which the players weren't there, and they look at the stats and stuff, um, and get the feedback from the coaches and that they, they could that could have been construed that way for sure so I really needed to to, to focus on that more and more and more so um, and once I started to, to change that mindset and focus more on one percenters and tackles and all the things that they wanted um, rather than the goals not as well so rather than that was the thing that they wanted to see they didn't want to see both they just wanted full focus on that and then whatever happened with the other one which I found difficult I found that difficult because I kind of wanted to do both naturally to protect myself from having four touches and one goal and not having a very good day. I wanted to kind of do it all. So once I started trusting them, obviously things started to get better. What's your relationship like now, I guess, with your uh, premiership teammates, uh, Adam Goods, and I guess the club as a whole in Sydney? Yeah, I obviously have a a good relationship with the club. Uh, We were before COVID, we were getting back there once a year to have a catch up with all the players, which was fantastic. And that included, players um, who didn't play in the grand final in 2012 or 205 just anyone who wants to come back we have a, have a night um, two years ago the last time that we did it I had the pleasure of sitting next to Paul Kelly for a whole half of football he had no idea who I was he thought I was uh, one of the players mates it was quite funny and someone told him that I kicked two goals in the grand final and he felt really bad and I said I, I said I don't care mate as long as I get to have a beer with you at the footy um, so that was a really good experience but look I'll say this when you live with really, really bad anxiety, it's very hard to make genuine connections with people. And if you look at what anxiety does, which is flick you into that fight or flight mode, your body and your mind effectively think you're in danger. It's pretty hard to go and make connections with people. So the connections that I made throughout my football career um, probably weren't as deep um, and long-lasting as I would have liked. Um, and now being over on the on the West Coast when nearly all of my teammates are on the East Coast, makes it difficult. Um, so the relationships probably aren't as strong as I would have liked. Um, but certainly when I get back there, we have a good time and it's really good to see everybody. That's great to hear. I guess you mentioned earlier those two crucial goals against the Hawks in that grand final. Uh, siren goes, you're a premiership player. But I guess the day as a whole, I mean, or even that weekend, the Friday and the Saturday, massive day i mean you got your grand final parade uh, and obviously especially if you win the festivities after the game what was the lead up like I mean, and i guess sort of being in your head with anxiety what was that lead up like uh, was it something that uh, was just absolutely terrifying were you able to soak anything up at all or can you where were you at i would say it was a very very challenging week absolutely I 
to give you an idea of what my head space was like at the time, the week before in the prelim against Collingwood, we played on the Friday night. I didn't have a great game offensively. I think I kicked one point. I only had seven or eight touches. But I'd had eight or nine tackles and would kick seven or eight goals from those tackles. But I didn't know that until we went to the team meeting on the Monday. So I was very concerned that weekend that I wasn't going to get picked for the grand final. I thought Ben McGlynn had come back from injury and I would get dropped or possibly sub. But I was that from that Friday to Monday after the prelim final was the least sleep that I've ever had in three days. And on the Monday, I, I seriously considered saying I was unavailable oh, wow. to play. That's how bad my anxiety was. I was, it's hard to even explain it. I was, um, I would say it was, it was a meltdown for that Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I didn't leave my house and I was told on Monday, I can't remember exactly the sequence of events, but I'd gone up to the coach's area and I don't know exactly what I was going to say but I was not in a good way in terms of my anxiety. And I can't remember if I was going to say I was struggling or what, or what I was just said. I can't remember if I was going to say, I don't know if I can do this. I can't remember. I was, but I was in a very, very bad way. And John Longmire saw me in the hallway and come out and said, are you ready to go for this week? I want, I want another eight or nine tackles or whatever it was like you had last week. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm playing. It turns out he didn't even know then if I was playing or not. He just said that because he didn't want me, my anxiety to blow up through the week. So he just said that, which was pretty amazing. And then I think that allowed me to get through the next couple of days. And then, yeah, what... The, the, the lead up to it, I wouldn't say it was enjoyable for me, but I got through it. Then I, I think Friday afternoon, it all started to kick in. And from there, I really struggled. You know, I struggled to keep food down, vomiting. I hardly slept. I can't, people were supposed to come see me in the hotel. I cancelled all of that. And just, it was just a battle from there on in to just, to just contribute. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to win and I wanted to contribute and, I just just fighting to do that. I, I played about 60% of the game, so I only played just over half. I couldn't have played anymore. I was out, I was gone. Like I just had no energy. It was just the week just took it out of me. And then obviously not keeping food down from the night before to the game. Couldn't keep power rate down. It was brutal. I look back, I don't really know how I did it, but I managed to do enough. I remember coming off with about 50. I sat the half the last quarter off. I remember coming off with 15 minutes left, and I, I honestly... I, I honestly was like, I hope that had put me back on. I had no energy. I, I struggled to run to the bench. And then, and then obviously I watched the last half like a fan. It was amazing. Last half of that last quarter. But once we kicked that goal with 20 or 30 seconds to go, Nick Nocheski, I realised we are probably going to win and that was a huge relief. But it was only for that last little bit, you know, you're going to win. So people ask me, how was the day? I say, well, you don't know you're going to win until the very end. Mm. So it's actually quite stressful. 
So it was a stressful day, but, you know, I look back with really good memories and really proud of the whole team for what they achieved on the day. And, yeah, I'm proud of myself for pushing through that because I don't know how I did it. So it was a pretty good effort. It's interesting that you said that you were very close to going to the the coaches and saying that you you were not available, that you you, you didn't know what you were going to say, but you were going to say, I just, I can't do it. Let's say, I guess, that conversation does happen or you weren't selected for the side. How do you, I guess it's a very sliding doors type of question. Do you think, would that have helped you get to where you are now? Would you've got to where you need to be sooner? I mean, I know it's a very broad question, but I mean, would you felt relief being told that you weren't selected or would you felt more release telling them that you weren't available? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, I'm a really positive person and I always look at on the bright side of things. Like I actually look back on my life and my, my struggles with anxiety and that, and I'm happy I went through it. I know that sounds insane, but like I am where I am today and I appreciate everything that I've got. And I feel like now that I'm living life in a really good frame of mind, it's what it's even better because I lived it in a bad frame of mind. So that's how I look at things. So my mum said to me once, recently she was like something about how good it would it have been if you had been able to figure all this out when you're playing footy um because i played footy in a pretty unique way when i was a kid a lot of people probably didn't get to see it and my parents it's hard for them for me not to to be able to continue playing afl the same type of way i played football as a kid and she said it would have been nice to be able to sort it out sooner and, and have i guess a more rewarding and fulfilling career and enjoy it more on that and and this is a bit brutal but this is how I look at things but I said mum I could have finished after my first year gone away sorted my anxiety out come back had the best year ever but then I could have got hit by a bus mm. <laughs> you just you just can't you just there's no point doing what ifs um because yeah. you just you just the butterfly effect like one small change you don't know where that's going to lead you so I just I don't know and it, at the time, I thought that I thought I knew I had anxiety, but I thought football gave me anxiety. I thought it was just the football because it started when I it really went into the next the next gear when I started playing football as a job. So I just thought that's what my anxiety was from. So I thought I was going to retire and then I'd be sweet. But my the five years after I retired were it just got worse and worse and worse. So I don't know what would have happened if I didn't play that game or I mean, if we lost and, or if we, and I didn't get a kick or if we, you know, my first snap, I've never really talked about this. I was 25 metres out. I'm a very good snapper. That should have gone into the 50th row. It nearly got touched on the line. <laughs> I didn't hit it that well. So, I mean, I always think about that. It went over by about a foot. If that gets touched and I ended up having five posies and don't kick any goals and we lose, you know. What does that do for me long term? But you just you just can't think like that because you know the butterfly effect. You know, one small change, you just don't know what it's going to do with your life. Siren goes. You're a premiership player, I guess. So all that beforehand, um, I guess you were the parade. Just quick question: Who are you in the uh, same car with? Oh, who was I in the car with for the? Was it? Was I with Alex Johnson or Luke Parker? <laughs> They look alike. That's a, good, that's a good question. I'll tell you what, I'll Google it. After we rewind it back. There's well, a photo of it, yeah. Well, why you Google that? Um, I mean, after the siren, again, kids 
dream of playing in AFL Grand Finals, especially a great game like that. It was a tight, close game, which like most Hawthorne games for Sydney were back then. You're a premiership player. What has gone on in your mind? Are you like, I've done it, I'm here, or was Mr. Anxiety, mind the pun, sort of in the back of the head and not allowing you to fully soak this up? Yeah, I think it definitely uh, held me back from enjoying the moment as much as I could have. But I, I enjoyed it as much as I possibly could have within the mindset that I was in. Like I had a, it was a great experience and winning it and that was phenomenal. But I didn't not have anxiety for that period of time. It was always there. It was always there. And it's hard to explain what that's like, but it was a very special moment. But I guess anxiety takes you away from where you are. You're worrying about the future. You're worrying about stuff all the time. I guess that was kind of still going on. It was only 24 hours later when everyone else was out having a great time that I was back in my bedroom with my doona pulled over my head, not wanting to do anything. So I talk to people about this. I've never really posted about it, but I have this kind of equation thing that I say to people is if you're trying to out achieve your anxiety or your issues in general, you, the amount of time that you'll feel good after what you achieve will only be for, so however severe your issues are, times them by how big the achievement is and then whatever that comes up with is how long you'll, you'll really enjoy that achievement for. So for me, I'd had chronic anxiety for nine years, but I won an AFL grand final. So, yeah, I felt pretty good for a little bit, you know, a day. <laughs> but, you know, if you've only had anxiety for one or two years and it's not that severe and then you win an AFL grand final, you might feel good for a couple of weeks. You know what I mean? So, or if you've got chronic anxiety, you've had it for a long time, and you win a local footy comp, then you might enjoy it for a similar time to I did. So you can't out-achieve and you can't outwork the issues that you have in life. You might enjoy that thing that you've been pushing for to achieve, but your issues, will, will they'll rear their head very, very quickly. And for me, it was only kind of 24 hours and I was back to where I was. And that's really sad because I should have enjoyed that um, for a lot longer. But I probably enjoy it now that I look back and I'm really proud of what I achieved more than I did in the kind of weeks that followed. Well, Sydney, did you talk to them about having anxiety or were you fully aware at this point in 2012? It's, I was seeing the club psych regularly, I would say weekly. He was fantastic. I don't think, I think the only two people that ever knew how bad my anxiety really was in the football world were Damien Hardwick and Matt Hornsby, who were the who was the fitness coach at Richmond in two, when I was there in 2008 to 11. I think they were the only two people that really got an in, insight into it because I was on extremely heavy medication when I was there and I couldn't I was struggling to train. And so they got a little insight into what was actually happening. But for the rest of the time, I just gritted my teeth and went through it on my own. I never really told anyone. So Sydney were aware that I had issues with anxiety, but they weren't aware of the extent of it. But neither were my parents. <laughs> neither was anybody. I just kept it all to myself, which is dangerous because then you're relying on being able to beat it on your own rather than reaching out to people and having the support of a network. 
So Sydney weren't aware of the extent that I was struggling. A bit more of a football question. Um, you mentioned Richmond, uh, Damien Hardwick, uh, and that there. Uh, I guess being part of that Sydney Premiership side, was there a bit of redemption that you felt, I guess, being let go by the Tigers the previous year? Well, not really. Um, they were very supportive of me, I guess, when I was, uh, I think from the outside, you know, some family and friends and that were kind of shocked that they wanted to move me on because the couple of years that I had before Damien Harbert got there were pretty good. But I had a reasonably good relationship with um, Dimmer. I didn't, I, he wasn't my biggest fan, but um, yeah, our relationship was fine and they were pretty supportive of me when I was in a really bad way. So I think some other people there might have thought that I was, and maybe, you know, maybe even the coaches and that, that I was hard work, but none of them really knew what I was going through. So when you're struggling with these issues, they just see your behaviour. They don't actually see what you're going through when you're not there. So I think there was always a discourse for me between what people saw and my behaviours and, and what I was, you know, really like. So I didn't feel any resentment or kind of like payback when I won. It's funny, when I first got to, to Sydney, they you know, because Richmond hadn't really had a lot of success for a long time, they would kind of, you know, ask what Richmond was like and stuff like that. And I guess there was a sense of a tone of almost like, you know, they weren't that good. But I, I kind of, I even used to say, be careful because they're going to be really good soon because they were going to be, you know, I thought it happened a bit quicker than it did, but I knew Richmond were going to be really good at some point. So... I hope that answers the question. <laughs> it's actually a good lead up to uh, my next question. I mean, you sort of hit the nail on the head. Looking at Richmond now, they've transformed themselves into one of the best teams in the comp. I mean, the best team. Three premierships in that four-year window. I mean, uh, often club great, say like Matthew Richardson, who was such a great player for the club, um, but never won that premiership. Obviously, you won the premiership with Sydney, but I guess you could say you were part of an era of uh, rebuilding and redeveloping at Richmond did get moved on, but did you kind of feel a sense of that you were a part of that Richmond, at least the first uh, 2017 uh, flag? It's a good question. I think the club changed a lot in that 2017 year. So I think there was kind of like, I think that that's when the, the rebuilding and what they've been doing, they shifted and they've kind of had a different kind of, philosophy underpinning everything they've been doing since then so I guess I feel like I wasn't a part of that so I feel like that's when they really started to, to take off and what they were doing before that I guess I felt like I was part of but I you know I was there for four years we had a pretty young group especially for the the first two years of Damien Hardwick's tenure and we had a yeah we had a really good bunch of guys we all got on really well and yeah I've been so stoked to watch um, all those guys that were young when I was there turning to phenomenal footballers and have the success that they've had. And yeah, I was really close to Jack and Dusty and Trent Cochin and Shane Edwards and all those guys. So um, yeah, I'm really, really happy for what they've been able to do. And you mentioned Dimmo before that you had a reasonably good relationship. Where would you rank uh, him as a coach? Well, it's hard to say because 
people often ask me because I have had quite a few coaches because I was there at Richmond when Terry Wallace finished and uh, Jay Rawlings took over. And my answer is you can't get to be an AFL coach if you're not a very good coach. So they've all been really good in their own, in their own way. Every single one of them I've learned heaps off. It's probably not the answer people want to hear, but I have heard that Damien Harbick changed his coaching style a fair bit from, from 2017 onwards. So um, I think, I think he's a different sort of coach to what he was when he first started. I haven't heard that um, firsthand from the players, but from other people, but yeah, every single coach is really good. And some of the assistant coaches are obviously awesome as well. I think by the time someone gets to, to be a senior coach, they're really good. They all have their own flavor and way of doing things. But obviously I was coached by three premiership coaches. So John Worsfold, um, John Longmire and Damien Harbick. So I was pretty lucky in that sense that I've got to witness some fantastic coaches um, who all go about things different ways. But I would obviously say that John Longmire was the best coach that I had because my best moment was, was obviously he was a part of it. So, What about best player to play alongside? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> That is a very tough question. I don't think there's been and maybe there will ever be a better first 100 games than Chris Judd. They're, I know, they're, especially with the way football's played now, he used to be able to have 16 possessions and kick two or three goals and get two or three Brownlow votes. He was just so unbelievable to watch and play with not that I played that many games with him but he was such a freak of a human being he changed the way he played a lot when he went to Carlton I know he, he was a lot stronger and is probably a lot better around stoppages and used to get a lot more of the ball um, obviously still won another Brownlow there so that was incredible but I would have to say that Chris Judd early Chris Judd Matthew Richardson was obviously an unbelievable athlete. He's got calves that are about that thin. <laughs> Don't know what his heritage is, but he can run like the wind. Oh, I played with so many that were good. Uh, Adam Goods, obviously, is unbelievable as well. Speaking of Richo, uh, did you get any classic sprays of Richo for not kicking him the ball? Yeah, every now and then, but <laughs> every now and then, but. Uh, my probably most consistent year in the AFL was 2009, and that was the year that he did his hamstring off the bone. Mm. So I played full forward instead of him, well, in the forward line and gave me opportunities to, to kick more goals because he was out. So when I won the, I actually won the goal kicking at Richmond that year, and the first thing I said was thank you to Richo's left hamstring because <laughs> without his left hamstring being torn, I never would be up here winning this award. So. And I think only four people have won that award in 25 years. So. Yeah. And That's did did cool. he find that funny or? Uh, yeah. Had... Yeah. I gave him a heads up that I was doing it, but no, he's got a great sense of humor. He's, yeah. he's, he's one of the nicest guys in the football world, Matthew Richardson. Can you remember a spray that he gave you? Like, why didn't you kick it to me, Mitch? I was wide open, something like that. Or, you know, that the, the, used... the old, the old classic, you know, who'd punch his own hand and things like that. He used to do that 
a lot, but I'm not sure how many I was on, on the end of. <laughs> I was pretty switched on with who I should and shouldn't kick the ball to. But I was probably next to him leading half the time, so I don't, don't know how many times I, I was on the other end of one of those sprays. Um, you admitted uh, basically going into West Coast as a youngster that you had anxiety, obviously not diagnosed at this time. Now, this is a very loaded question uh, and interested to see, you know, whether or not you want to be candid about it. You don't have to be, but I uh, want to ask the question. Successful side that you're going into, and I'll touch on the 05 and 06 grand finals uh, after this question. A lot of controversy, though. Uh, the likes of Ben Cousins, Daniel Chick, Kerr, um, uh, Chris Judd would eventually leave. I think it's in 07. Those other players sort of got on the wrong side of the law. As a young kid coming into the West Coast Eagles, did there appear to be a drug culture at the football club? I think when you're – I was 17 when I got there and left when I was 19 or 20. You, you're not – I wasn't hanging out with those guys that supposedly were, were doing all those things. So, you know, and more often than not, to be honest, I was playing waffle for, for Claremont more than I played for West Coast. I played 50-odd games for Claremont and 12 for West Coast. So when I was going out, other than the end of the season, often it was with the Claremont guys because the Eagles guys had a game the next day or they'd played the day before. So I didn't really have the opportunity to, to see all what, what people supposedly said went on. That wasn't to say that we didn't have, you know, some good times on, at the end of the season and all that stuff together. But, uh, yeah, I used to live across the road from Ben Cousins in my third year at West Coast, my last year, and we used to go to training together most days and stuff like that. And, yeah, it wasn't. I certainly wasn't aware of, you know, what they're, what they're up to and I live next door to him. So obviously if people say that they were doing all that stuff and playing and stuff, I probably find that pretty hard to believe. But those guys trained, you know, that unit that they had, that team was, was a very, very good team. And they trained, you know, really hard, really hard. So anyone that says that they have issues with them winning a grand final because someone got in trouble over some recreational stuff, I mean... Uh, they definitely earned that grant. They earned that premiership. So that's all I'll say. It was an interesting time, especially for me. I think I was about 16, 15 at the time, 05, uh, you know, Swan's uh, drought-breaking uh, grand final premiership win. The following year, West Coast, get it done by points. I was in tears. I mean, as a youngster on the sideline, what did you watch those games and were you in awe of those games? Yeah, so I was... I think I played up until round, I played three games in 05, which were round 19, 20, 21, which I think was, they were kind of getting guys ready for the finals. That was probably why I was playing. Um, and then the next year, I think I only played one game, would have been around 21, something around there, um, which is when Sydney won, no, West Coast 106. So, um, yeah, I was, I was a part of it. Um, and it was great to, to be there and watch them. Um, me, there's a couple of us that made a commitment at the time that we wanted to win a grand final, so we weren't going to touch any of their medals. So I actually hadn't touched a, a grand final medal because there's actually something really cool written on the back of them, which I didn't even know about until I, until I won one. And we were standing there 
after we got it on the MCG and one of the guys said, have you read what's on the back and had a look on the back and it's got something really cool written on there. So I didn't even know about that. Um, but it was, yeah, obviously amazing to be in the stands for those two games. They were phenomenal and really happy to watch it. But when you're really close to something like that, you also want to be a part of it. So um, it's always hard for guys that are, have played at some point towards the end of the season and then are out of the side and then the team goes into the finals and you're, you might be the 23rd or 24th, might even be the 27th or 28th player in line, but mm. you, still, you still want to be part of it. So it's hard. Absolutely. And I think the years after that as well, there was so many games decided by like a point. It was like under 10 points, like all up. And it was an amazing rivalry. Um, have, when was the last time you checked your Wikipedia page, Mitch? Oh, not for a while. I don't, <laughs> really, don't read up on myself very regularly. Um, if this is correct, this is interesting. So uh, West Coast, you were there from 2005 to uh, 2007. 12 games, 11 goals. Uh, obviously, good stint at uh, Richmond there, just under 60 games. But Sydney, uh, 2012 to 2013, 12 games, 11 goals as well. Same as your West Coast time. Um, now, I'm not saying that Wikipedia is exactly going to be exactly correct, but I reckon that's pretty close to being spot on just uh i'm a bit of a numbers and a stats guy at times that's uh rather interesting it is yeah yeah um i think i definitely kicked a lot more goals per game at richmond than i did anywhere else i had a couple of my last game for west coast wasn't a bad game i think i kicked three against Essendon. that was in james hurd's last game and i was an Essendon fan so that was surreal except we lost because Scott Lucas kicked, I think he kicked seven goals in the last quarter. And that was an interesting day. But, yeah, I wasn't aware of those stats. I don't really read up too much on that stuff. Tell you what, they've got your nickname here as the Derminator. No, I think that was something someone did at a job that I was at as a bit of a joke. Okay. Was that uh, it was, was it in reference to anything of noteworthiness? Uh, not at all. No, just a joke. <laughs> just a, an in, in-house joke for a in-house. job that I had, I think, a couple uh, of years ago, yeah. Fair yeah. enough then. Uh, I was hoping that was uh, maybe something uh, with one of the footy clubs. But I guess um, we see a lot of WA players um, who come over uh, to, you know, Victoria or this side of the country and uh, I guess get a bit homesick. Did you find yourself getting homesick uh, mixed with the anxiety? No, nah, I was probably lucky that I was pretty prepared for it because I'd gone to boarding school for five years. So, um, and really, really enjoyed that experience. So I enjoy the challenge of going away and getting to a new city and learning what that's about and finding new places and stuff like that. And then obviously you have the support of a football club and you know, you, you, you're in a reasonably high paid job. So that makes things a lot easier when you move. So yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. If you had to, uh, where do your allegiance lie? Do you see, you see, do you see yourself as a West Coast uh, guy, a Richmond guy or a Sydney guy? I would say Sydney because I'm a life member. Very, very lucky to have played 11 games at a football club, be a life member, but I'll take it. So, um, yeah, very lucky to be a part of that club and forever, I guess. So um, definitely I don't watch a lot of football, but I follow all the Sydney scores and keep up to date with all the young guys and, and try to stay interested in what they're up to there. Absolutely. And I guess um, there will most likely be some form of reunion, hopefully next year, uh, COVID and uh, the airwaves um, uh, permitting. Um, so will you be attending that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, like I said before, we were going back once every year before COVID hit. And then obviously with COVID, that's put a 
put a halt on on that, which is disappointing. But um, it's great to get back and see everybody. And uh, even though it only is only once a year, it'd probably be more if I was living over there on the east coast. But that's just what happens when you live over in in Perth. Mitch Morton, 2012 Premiership uh, play with the Swans and the founder of Mr. Anxiety. If anyone who is suffering anxiety or wants to get more information, what's the best way to do so? I think the best thing to do is probably head to my Instagram account. So it's at Mr. Anxiety underscore AUS, as in Oz, and just suss it out and see if you like it and see if there's anything that I post on there. That resonates with you. I run a free program. So every day we post something that people can go away and do for that day. Um, I also post instructions and the reasoning why we're doing that type of activity. It's got a link on there through to the website so you can have a look at if there's any live events. We are going to start doing those on the East Coast. I was planning on doing them in the next couple of weeks, but COVID's probably put a halt to that. But just check out the Instagram account. I probably have five or ten people following me that created Instagram just to follow me. So it doesn't take long to do if you uh, want to have a look and check out what it's like. I, like I said before, you know, I'm constantly researching and, and, and reading and testing and trialing all these different um, things so that I can present them to people in a way that they can understand. And it's a lot easier than going away and reading heaps of books yourself. So yeah, check it out. And that website, again, is mysteryanxiety.com.au. Mitch Morton, I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, being very open and candid about uh, your suffering from anxiety. And I guess it's a, it, it's a good story to let people know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. No, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Hey, I'm Mads. And I'm Debs. Together, we are true bloods. We love the bloody Swannies and we do a review and a preview of Swannies games each and every week. And to anyone who wants to have a listen to our pod, jump on all good podcast suppliers, whether that's your Apple podcast or your Spotify podcast or your Google Chrome podcast. Jump on, that's where you'll find true bloods and we appreciate the support. Thanks, guys.